All right, so we are obviously continuing our study in Genesis, and as you know, a few weeks ago, we sort of branched off into a little bit of a broader look at the subject of the foundational relationship institution, and that's the the foundational relationship of marriage that is introduced to us at the end of Genesis chapter 2. And uh, we've spent a little bit of time talking about, we started off by really pointing out the decay of marriage in our modern day culture. I read off to you quite a number of statistics that point to that fact, and really it's alarming uh, from a cultural standpoint. Um, We also highlighted the fact that the, the degradation of marriage in general is not just a secular culture problem, but it's also a problem within the context of professing Christian people, people of some profession of faith, um, of religious people in general. It's, it's not just confined to a secular society, but it also encroaches upon um, the church and on people of faith. So it's our problem. It's not just the problem of the, the big nasty world out there. This degradation and decline in an understanding of biblical marriage as a foundation of human interaction and relationship in society and the importance of it, the significance of it, is really, for, for the most part, lost on most people, both religious and non-religious. So it's an important study, especially when you talk about the study of a biblical anthropology. I mean, if we're talking about the study of man and his culture and his environment and his origins and his development, it stands to reason that this would be of paramount importance for us. We, we're talking about man's relationships as, as, a, as a part of this study of biblical anthropology. In 1987, the end of 1987, and really at the beginning of, of 1988, two Christian organizations were formed. And both these organizations were founded by Christian scholars and authors and pastors. Um, both of these organizations appeal to Scripture and its authority uh, as the ultimate source of authority and truth. They both appeal to the Scriptures for that. Both, both of these organizations would strongly advocate for a careful and accurate interpretation of Scripture and a diligent application of Scripture in the lives of God's people. Both of these organizations are focused upon the promotion of biblical relationships, particularly those between men and women in marriage and in the church and in society. But while both of these organizations, these two organizations, share some common characteristics and some common stated core beliefs, and really they have a fairly similar overarching mission emphasis, these two organizations do, They could not be more divergent in their fundamental driving theological viewpoints. The first organization that I want to talk to you about, or I want to just highlight for you to kind of point out this divide that exists even within the Christian community, is called Christians for Biblical Equality, abbreviated CBE. I want to give you a little bit of background and and, uh, history and and a little bit of mission statement information on this organization. Christians for Biblical Equality is a nonprofit organization of Christian men and women who believe that the Bible, properly interpreted, teaches the fundamental equality of men and women of all ethnic groups, all economic classes, and all age groups based on the teachings of Scripture, such as Galatians 3.28, 
which states, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So far, sounds pretty good. Now, the history is this. The, the, disturbed by the shallow biblical premise used by churches, organizations, and mission groups to exclude the gifts of women, evangelical leaders assembled in 1987 to publish their biblical perspective on a, in a new scholarly journal entitled The Priscilla Papers. The group determined that a national organization was needed to provide education, support, and leadership about biblical equality. Christians for Biblical Equality was established on January 2nd, 1988. Now listen to the mission statement of CBE. CBE exists to promote biblical justice and community by educating Christians that the Bible calls women and men to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and world. So this is an organization that is not just about equality as a general principle, it's about equality as a functional principle. Okay, we'll talk a little bit about those distinctions. Their core values are this. Number one, Scripture is our authoritative guide for faith, life, and practice. Good. Patriarchy, or in parentheses it says male dominance, that's how they define patriarchy, is not a biblical ideal but a result of sin. And I would agree, male dominance is a result of sin, for sure. We're going to talk about that. Patriarchy is an abuse of power, taking from females what God has given them, their dignity and freedom, their leadership, and often their very lives. While the Bible reflects patriarchal culture, the Bible does not teach patriarchy in human relationships. This is going to be a very key point, this issue of culture as a, as a point of interpretation of Scripture particularly around these issues. Number five, Christ's redemptive work frees all people from patriarchy, calling women and men to share authority equally in service and leadership. There again, functional equality, not just equality of essence or personhood or, or what have you. Number six, God's design for relationships includes faithful marriage between a man and a woman, celibate singleness, and mutual submission in Christian community. So I can agree with that. I think you would too. The unrestricted use, this is number seven, the unrestricted use of women's gifts is integral to the work of the Holy Spirit and essential for the advancement of the gospel in the world. The unrestricted use of women's gifts is integral to the work of the Holy Spirit and essential for the advancement of the gospel in the world. Number eight, followers of Christ are to oppose injustice and patriarchal teachings and practices that marginalize and abuse females and males. So can you kind of get the gist of, of what this organization is about, the thrust of it? It's really a Christian offshoot of a sort of a feminist movement kind of entity. It has a lot of... Um, ties to what would just be considered secular cultural feminism that has emerged in our culture in the last you know, 50 years or so. So that's the first organization, CBE, the Christians for Biblical Equality. Now, simultaneous to this, almost simultaneous to this, another organization was formed 
called the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, or the, print, the, uh, the acronym is the CBMW. They, they came up with this statement called the Danvers Statement, which is where it took place, uh, where it was formed in Danvers, Massachusetts. So let me just read this to you. The Danvers Statement summarizes the need for the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and serves as an overview of our core beliefs. This statement was prepared by several evangelical leaders at a CBMW meeting in Danvers, Massachusetts in December of 1987. It was first published in final form by CBMW in Wheaton, Illinois in November of 1988. So there's your timeline right around the same time um, as the formation of Christians for Biblical Equality. Now here's their rationale. We have been moved in our purpose by the following contemporary developments which we observe with deep concern. Number one, the widespread uncertainty and confusion in our culture regarding the complementary differences between masculinity and femininity. Number two, the tragic effects of this confusion in unraveling the fabric of marriage woven woven by God out of the beautiful and diverse strands of manhood and womanhood. Number three, the increasing promotion given to feminist egalitarianism with accompanying distortions or neglect of the glad harmony portrayed in Scripture between the loving, humble leadership of redeemed husbands and the intelligent, willing support of that leadership by redeemed wives. Number four, the widespread ambivalence regarding the values of motherhood, vocational homeworking, and homemaking, and the many ministries historically performed by, by women. Number five, the growing claims of legitimacy for sexual relationships which have biblically and historically been considered illicit or perverse, and the increase in pornographic portrayal of human sexuality. Now, this is in the eight, late 80s. So this is, this is pre-internet. Okay. Number six, the upsurge of physical and emotional abuse in the family. Number seven, the emergence of roles for men and women in church leadership that do not conform to biblical teaching, but backfire in the crippling of biblical faithful witness. Number eight, the increasing prevalence and acceptance of hermeneutical oddities, biblical interpretation oddities, that's what hermeneutics is, devised to reinterpret apparently plain meanings of the biblical text. Remember we talked about this when we were looking at origins and we were looking at the creation narrative and how the interpretive gymnastics that you have to go through to get from a plain reading of the text of Scripture to some other reinterpretation of it to fit a current social, cultural context. And that's, what, that's one of the concerns that led to the formation of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. The consequent threat to biblical authority as the clarity of Scripture is jeopardized and the accessibility of its meaning to ordinary people is withdrawn into the restricted realm of technical ingenuity. Did you catch that? In other words, to really understand these particular passages of Scripture, you have to be really super smart and really trained and really informed in all manner of culture and custom in the Greco-Roman world historically and on and on and on it goes. So it's almost like a, a form of Gnosticism, secret knowledge that only those with the right teaching or training would have, rather than the plain meaning, uh, the biblical authority and the clarity of Scripture. And then number 10, this is the 10th concern, behind all this, 
is the apparent accommodation of some within the church to the spirit of the age at the expense of winsome, radical, biblical authenticity, which in the power of the Holy Spirit may reform rather than reflect our ailing culture. It goes on to cite a number of affirmations that will come out in our, in our lesson. I'm not going to read through, through all of them, <clears throat> but I want you to think about this for a second. You've got two organizations that come to the fore in the late 80s, the late 1980s. Both of these organizations, as I said, share some common values, some common uh, statements of, of purpose and belief, but you can see clearly where the road divides when you just look at their history and their core values and the things that are sort of driving the work that they do, the writing that they do, the conferences that they hold, and so forth. Now, I want you to think about this. Fast forward now. Listen, actually, listen to the last, the last uh, affirmation of Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Listen to what they say. They say, we are convinced, this is back in, in the late 80s, we are convinced that a denial or neglect of these principles will lead to increasingly destructive consequences in our families, our churches, and the culture at large. Now fast forward 28 years to the modern day. And we read things like this. In August of 2015, Target became the next corporate power after Amazon to rid themselves of all gender designations and labels for children's toys and bedding. Target and Amazon obliterating gender distinction in children's toys and bedding. Recent survey data from the Pew Research Center finds that a public that is deeply divided over the role marriage plays in society. Survey respondents were asked which one of the following statements came closer to their own views. The first statement, society is better off if people make marriage and having children a priority. Or, second statement, society is just as well off if people have priorities other than marriage and children. Some 46% of adults chose the first statement, prioritization of marriage and family and children, 50% chose the second. It's just not that important. After being told by users that it's 58, 58 existing gender options are not inclusive enough, Facebook has relented and given its U.S.-based members a chance to fill in their own gender as they wish. Facebook will also allow users to select between three pronouns, him, her, or their. Facebook. 58 gender designations. You read the list and it's like, it's, it's almost like a foreign language is being spoken now as it relates to gender. It's unreal. I thought about reading off some of the list, but I thought that would be, some of it's kind of offensive and some of it's just like, it, it's just meaningless pap. It doesn't, it's just goofy. In a book entitled, Supporting Boys and Girls When the Line Isn't Clear, the author states this, quote, Children as young as five who display predispositions to dress like the opposite sex are being supported by a growing number of young parents, educators, and mental health professionals. Doctors, some of them from the top pediatric hospitals, have begun to advise families to let the children, let these children be, quote, who they are to foster a sense of security and self-esteem. 
At the Park Day School in Oakland, teachers are taught a gender-neutral vocabulary and are urged to line up students by sneaker color rather than by gender. Here's a quote from the school's director. We are careful not to create a situation where students are being boxed in. We allow them to move back and forth until something feels right. We're talking about their gender. Okay, we're not talking about their mood. Five-year-olds or this day school. Dr. Robin D., the director of regional mental health for Kaiser Permanente in Northern California, said, quote, Our gender identity is something we feel in our soul, but it is also a continuum and it evolves, end quote. This is a doctor for Kaiser Permanente. And then here we come, us fuddy-duddy, stuck-in-the-mud, Bible-thumping Christians, when we come to passages like Genesis. Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created him. Male and female created them. And he blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over everything that moves on the earth. He said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Fit for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whether the man called every living creature, whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they will become one flesh. Male and female, man and woman, made for each other, fit for each other, and this is being completely obliterated in our culture. Now, I don't say all this to say that those who are a part of Christians for Biblical Equality would, would advocate a complete obliteration of gender distinctions. They wouldn't. In fact, in one of the statements that I read about their, their core values, they value monogamous marriage, male and female relationships, and monogamous, monogamous marriage. But here's the problem. Is it possible for any of us individually or any organization of Christians collectively, whether in the context of a local church or some other Christian parachurch organization, is it possible for us as a stated purpose to deviate even in the slightest measure from the clear and plain teaching of Scripture and not do massive damage, not have even unintended consequences take hold. For example, if you are a part of a church or a part of a family in which male and female roles, gender roles in the context of marriage and family or in the context of the church or in the context of society are in some ways co-opted by a secular mindset, an unbiblical mindset, and you grow up in that environment, could that not possibly lead to further deviation on the part of that child as they grow up? 
I mean, who knows what the reciprocal, unintended consequences and fallout of this might turn out to be, generation after generation. And this is where we are. We talked about this a few times before. The ideal that is laid out to us in Genesis chapter 2 is still the ideal, even though there was a fall and even though there was a curse that corrupted that ideal in male-female relationship and marriage, it is still held up as the ideal. Jesus himself held it up in Matthew chapter 19. So guys, listen. When we talk about a biblical anthropology and we zero in on this subject of marriage and family as a foundational component of human relationship. It is critically important that we understand what the scriptures teach. We looked last time, and we've looked at this a few times before, that man and woman's relationship to and their role within God's created world is that of representative ruler, both created in the image of God, both called to multiply and fill the earth. So the call, the mandate of procreation, and then the mandate of dominion was given to both of them equally. But there is distinction as well. And we introduced this last time, that man and woman's relationship to one another in marriage and the carrying out of this representative rule is that man is a responsible head and woman is a complementary helper. And we walked through the passages that just reiterate that. Man is created first. Man is placed in a special garden. Man is given the responsibility of working and keeping the garden. Man is given the first moral command. Man is given authority to name the animals. Man is promised a helper fit for him. Man is presented with this suitable helper. Man names this helper. And then man is responsible for leaving and cleaving. That's just in Genesis. You get to Genesis chapter 3, and you see that man is identified as the primary point of accountability for sin. He's initially confronted by God, not Eve. His primary infraction that we'll see in that when we look at that more deeply uh, in the coming weeks, when we look at Genesis chapter 3, his primary infraction was his failure of leadership, his failure of fulfilling his role in that relationship. And we see this amplified in a huge way in Romans chapter 5, where Man is named the one responsible for bringing sin into the world. Not, not, not woman, not Eve. Man is. Adam is held accountable there. So when we go to the New Testament, we see this model reemphasized, reaffirmed. And we talked a little bit about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 8 to 9. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And then, of course, Ephesians 5, and following, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Colossians 3, 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 1 Peter 3, 1 to 12, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see their respectful and pure conduct. So last time we finished with this almost what might feel like this heavy burden, like I'm trying to emphasize male headship. You know, man's the boss, women. Just get over it. Get over yourselves. We're in charge, large and in charge. Don't you forget it. That's not the point. The point is, is that the the relationship dynamic that is clearly set up in Scripture is male responsibility and headship, female help and submission. 
That is the relationship that's set up. It's the clear teaching of Scripture. Now, here's the prevailing question for us. In light of this, does this model, male headship and responsibility, female help and and submission, does it transcend time and culture and therefore apply to us today? Or is this model essentially a, this, a, a patriarchal cultural construct to which the writers of Scripture accommodated because the readers who would be reading it originally would have understood the teaching in the context in which they lived, which was a male-dominated patriarchal society and culture. And so in order for us to understand this in our day and time, we have to sort of reinterpret this and really kind of separate out what is, is exclusively cultural in the time that the scripture was written and to the people it was written to, do we need to reinterpret it based upon that? Is this a transcendent model that applies to us today, or does it need to be reevaluated and reinterpreted based upon our modern culture? And we need to not really take, pull things that are really confined to that culture and bring them into our culture because that wouldn't make any sense. That's really the prevailing question. And that really... Uh, highlights the point of contention or difference between Christians for Biblical Equality as an organization and the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Let me give you an example of that. An article, a very lengthy and relatively scholarly article on the website for the Christians for Biblical Equality uh, is an article entitled, Woman's Role in New Testament Household, Co- Household Codes. So Ephesians 5, First um, Peter chapter three, Colossians three. These these household instructions, these household codes that you see in the New Testament. So this this woman writes this article, and so regarding the First Peter chapter three verse one passage, which says, "Wives be subject to your own husbands," she says this: "For a married woman whose husband was not converted yet, remember that's the passage that says, live in such a way so that you might win your husband, right?" For a married woman whose husband was not converted yet, her obedience first belonged to God, for she had assumed a new identity in Christ. She was first God's slave. Yes. Thus, there would be no compromise in her allegiance to God. Other than that, she continued to be her husband's wife and under his authority in the household. So in that culture, under his authority in the household. Her proper roles and responsibilities as a household wife in the Roman society would not differ from her neighbors. So the idea here, and and what was talked about in the other parts of the article, was that certainly Peter would not write in such a way that would create such a divergence between the rest of culture, the rest of society around them, so as to make it seem so odd and so unconnected, disconnected from that culture. So it it wouldn't differ from her neighbors, this author says. Now, here's the, here's the key point. Thus, the instruction should not be taken as a theological principle, but as an exhortation for a Christian wife and a non-Christian family to minimize conflict due to religious practices. Key point. Don't take this as a theological principle, meaning 
something that would transcend time and culture. That's what they mean by a theological principle, something that is above time and space and culture. It's a theological, it's, a, it's centered in the character of God and his word and his truth and his principles for living. It's transcendent. So it should not be taken that way. Regarding 1 Peter 3, 7, which says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Ooh. Do you hear that, ladies? That's what it says. Weaker vessels. All of you. Deal with it. Without contradicting the cultural belief that women were weaker. It's a cultural belief. Did you, did you hear that? This is what the writer is saying. Without contradicting the cultural belief that women were weaker, First Peter exhorts that the weaker ones also receive honor instead of being marginalized. Harmony would no longer be displayed by the proper ruling order in the household. Rather, it is lived out in mutual honor between household members. So in other words, this statement by Peter that the husband is to honor the wife as the weaker vessel, that identification as a weaker vessel is a cultural construct. It has no transcendent meaning or implication or merit. And it stands to reason. I mean, who wants to go around identifying themselves as, hi, my name's Alicia Goff. I am the weaker vessel. Nice to meet you. Right? I mean, if you put it in that kind of stark, goofy kind of scenario, no, no one wants to think of themselves as weak if we're thinking secularly. But in this case, this writer is saying it's a cultural belief at that time. Regarding Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, this author is quoting another scholar named McDonald. And she says, McDonald applies, quote, love patriarchalism to Pauline household codes. Again, the Ephesians 5 passage to the Pauline household codes, arguing that the codes retained the patriarchal hierarchy in the process of institutionalization. In other words, I know this is kind of getting a little bit technical in, in nature, but this, this particular scholar is saying that the, the household codes in Ephesians chapter 5 were part of the Apostle Paul's process of bringing an institutional nature to the life of the church. So if you think about the church as this evolving movement that begins to get organized and begins to develop institutional structure and, and constructs, this is what's happening here in Ephesians chapter 5. So she says this, However, retaining the social strata does not mean Paul intended to keep the structure. So in other words, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives, this was not intended to be kept. That's not, that wasn't what Paul intended. Retaining that social strata does not mean Paul intended to keep the structure. As with 1 Peter, authors of New Testament household codes did not aim to demolish the social structure, but to define for the first Christian communities the proper relationships among the members of the communities. In other words, again, this is an argument that says that the writers of Scripture particularly related to their writing on marriage relationships and household function and roles and responsibilities, accommodated to the culture. And that teaching and that instruction is not intended in its entirety to be translated into 
a modern contemporary culture for interpretive purposes and for corresponding application of the text to our daily lives and marriage and family. It's cultural. Okay. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to turn there. We're going to spend some time in Ephesians chapter 5. And as I read through this, we're going to read verses 22 to 33. And I want you guys to read very observantly, because I'm going to ask you a question, or a couple of questions, after we finish reading this, okay? Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So here's the question. In this immediate context of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, do you see anything, just as, as you read it silently with me, do you see anything that points to or emphasizes the cultural realities of the day that the original recipients of the letter would be thinking of or assuming as they received this? Do you see anything that would emphasize the cultural realities of the original recipients of the letter? Anywhere in that immediate context, does anybody see any? Anything that seems like it's tied to that time and that place and that culture. I mean, you can if you do, then I mean, I'm I'm not going to start a debate. So if you do see something, let's 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 point it out. I mean, do you think that people interpret in verse 24 now as the church submits? Do you think that could be something they use with that word now? And that's kind of what they're spinning that word. Um, I'm I'm not sure what you mean by that. So you're talking about like cultural, so maybe they're, you know, as you were mentioning earlier, you know, the church of that time and it coming together. So then when they're saying, you know, so I guess it says, now as the church submits, okay. I think that they're taking that little phrase right there and potentially flipping it to say, well, this is, you know, from a time perspective. Okay, that's a good, that's a good catch. So yeah, that definitely has a time component to it, right? It definitely, it definitely uh, puts the text in that time frame. And, and, and gives, you, gives you some reference to the developing church as an entity. I mean, I know I'm grasping for straws on that. No, but I mean, that's, that's, a, that's, that's, that's a fair catch in general. You look at the NFC and it says but instead of that. Yeah. And, and I apologize. I don't, know, I don't know the Greek on this, so I, I can't really speak to that. I apologize. But anything else that seems culturally constrained in some way? Maybe 
Okay, but you say maybe. So do you see it in the text, or are you just sort of saying maybe? You see what I'm saying? I mean, you have to kind of start reaching a little bit, right? I mean, and I, I'm kind of pushing you guys to strain for something, right? And that's, that really makes the point. I mean, I don't see anything here that says... Now, if you want to, if you want to look at something that's very cultural in its, in its nature in terms of the actual explicit content of the text, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when it starts talking about head coverings and long hair and short hair and men and women. And, and we'll probably deal with that a little bit. That has explicit cultural, local time and place references in that passage that are unmistakable. I mean, it's all over that text. And it's a, it's a bit of a sticky wicket to, to work through, admittedly. But in this particular passage, I, I, I don't see it. I mean, I just, I just don't see it. So did you read my notes before you came up, when I stepped out or something? Because my next question was this. Do you see anything that emphasizes or highlights a transcendent theological principle that would apply equally today as it does when it was written? And it's kind of all over the place, right? I mean, it's kind of like the thrust of the whole text. It's talking about Christ and his relationship with the church. I mean, Lord willing, I pray that that's not something that's confined to that culture. I'm kind of counting on that being true today, right? Aren't you? So, so my point here is that if you just look at the text, and remember what I said about this idea of needing to be very scholarly and having all this background to be able to understand what's going on. Well, even if you take a broad swath of, of a text like 22 to 33, there's nothing there that's cultural. So let's broaden it a little bit. Do you have, were you going to say something? Yeah. You know, then, I mean, that, that in and of itself is a timeless truth. So. Yeah. So if you really want to broaden the context, so, okay, we don't want to get too particular. Let's just look at this particular section and say that there's no cultural reference here. So obviously it's not a cultural thing. Let's broaden the context. I wasn't even going to go all the way, all the way to chapter one, which is a very good point. I mean, you could start in Ephesians chapter one and you're talking about transcendent realities of before time began, elective purposes of God, okay? So you don't get more transcendent than that, okay? But even if you just turn to Ephesians chapter 3, look at Ephesians chapter 3 real quick. In chapter 5, verse 32, Paul mentions this mystery, right? This mystery of the church. Well, look at Ephesians chapter 3 and look at what Paul says here. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, 
you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. We're talking about the mystery of Christ. We're not talking about Ephesian culture and society. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. He says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to this holy apostle, to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This is according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and, ac- boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. We're talking comprehensive, transcendent purpose that the Apostle Paul is writing about. This mystery that was long hidden for the ages is now being revealed. We're talking about this transcendent rollout of redemptive history according to God's eternal plan. Guys, I'm making a big deal about this because it's so important that we understand that when you come at Scripture and you force into it things from a secular mindset, you're going to go astray. It's going to be disastrous. So, if we affirm that a model of male responsibility and headship that is complemented by female help and submission, particularly within the context of marriage, is the defining relationship model that we see throughout Scripture. And if we conclude that this model is based upon applicable, transcendent, and inspired principles rather than culturally confined accommodations by the writers of Scripture, then it is imperative that we seek to deeply understand this model so that we can live out our respective roles as men and women and husbands and wives with increasing faithfulness to the glory of God. So we're going to look at over the next, uh, probably just next week will be our, our last week in this, I think. But we're going to look at this whole subject of the marriage relationship and the role of men and women, roles of men and women in that context. And I'm going to get, I'll go ahead and give you kind of the outline that we're going to follow. We're going to, we're going to see that the complementary roles of male responsibility and headship and female help and submission are innate. They're innate to us. They're tied to how we're made, is another way to say it. We're going to see that the complementary roles of male responsibility and headship and female help and submission are transcendently purposeful. They're transcendently purposeful. We've just alluded to some of that. We're going to find out that the complementary roles of male responsibility and headship and female help and submission are comprehensively practical. They just they kind of work well when they're done well. They have a real practical implication to them. The complementary roles of male responsibility and headship and female help and submission require supernatural power. 
The converse to that is, in particular, female or wifely submission and help is not a function of weakness. It is a function of tremendous supernatural power that's required. And we'll talk about that. We'll, we'll expand on that. And the, herein lies, I think, the big, the big problem is that this idea of submission, female or wifely submission, and being a helpmate, a suitable helper, is in a very secular, self-centered way, it just seems demeaning and degrading intellectually. And then that mindset is compounded by the fact that the world is full of and has historically for the ages been full of Yahoo men who either don't lead or who overlord women and abuse their role and their authority. And so the problem is compounded by sin. But it it, it requires supernatural power, both of these roles. We're also going to look at how the complementary roles of male responsibility and headship and female help and submission are not mutually exclusive in their respective functions, meaning simply this. The female's role of helpful submission does not mean that she never leads. And the man's role of responsibility and headship does not mean that he never helps and supports and serves. They're not mutually exclusive. That's another thing that gets in people's heads. We're also going to see that the complementary roles of male responsibility and headship and female help and submission are not contingent upon reciprocal faithfulness. In other words, me fulfilling my role faithfully is not contingent upon my wife fulfilling her role faithfully. I don't get to play that card. I don't get to make the claim of, well, if she would just do what she's supposed to do, then I would do what I'm supposed to do. And vice versa. It doesn't work that way. It is not contingent upon some notion of reciprocal faithfulness. We're going to see that the complementary roles of male responsibility and headship and female help and submission, they stand at the epicenter of Christian sanctification. In other words... If you take a passage like in Philippians chapter 2 that says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both the will and to work for his good pleasure. Take a passage like that and you ask yourself the question, okay, so how do I work out my salvation? What do I need to do? Well, I can tell you that if you're married, then that relationship stands at the epicenter of sanctification. And we'll see that as well when we look at Genesis chapter 3. And then we'll also see that the complementary roles of male responsibility and headship and female help and submission are profoundly satisfying. Profoundly satisfying. So I'm looking forward to getting into this. I hope that God blesses it and uses it to kind of reaffirm what we already know and believe or maybe provide some insight into some things that we haven't thought about before. And, um, and we'll jump into this outline starting next week. Let's pray.